0: First of all, the very first thing I want to do in order, again, we know that we have to keep those two pillars in mind, right, concerning salvation, concerning um, the doctrines that have been laid so far. Um, I did a little journey for myself yesterday, last night. I went through 1 Corinthians from beginning to end, from starting with chapter 1 and going all the way through where we are which is at 11, and I made two lists, and this is front and back on the first page and then all the way into the second one. What I did is I pulled out, out of each chapter, what I saw as the major doctrinal teaching, trying to eliminate all the details about it, not so much the whys and the hows and the winds but this is the doctrinal truth, right? Then in the other column, I listed the major exhortations that were in that chapter that pertained to that doctrinal statement, okay? And by doing that, it helped me to clarify what is the author really doing regarding teaching doctrine to us, and what is he exhorting this church to do? Because after all, that's what we are. We're the body. We're the body of Christ. We're the church. And so if, if God is speaking to you and I through this inspired writing, he's saying, first of all, hold fast to your doctrines, right? And secondly, hold, uh, hold up uh, as your higher standing for interpretation what the author's intent is, correct? Correct. So this helped me a lot as far as just clarifying what is in here and what is not in here. And that was very enlightening when it came to kind of comparing what I've seen in some commentaries and what I've heard through, through some of these messages that I've been listening to, these sermons that are online that you can go in and tap into. Um, when I was done, although this was really good, the, the major thing that came up to me was the emphasis on his message about that love edifies we we really hit this strongly in chapter eight eight through ten and very interestingly it it dawned on me as i was doing some of my homework last night making out my chart i went we're coming upon another love chapter very soon which one yeah and all of a sudden i just went wow ding 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 this, this really strong message to this church is that no matter what it is that you do, everything is, number one, to be, to be held fast to the doctrines that have been taught, right? The truths of the gospel concerning Christ and your salvation and what God has in store for us. All those things are to be held fast. But everything else is to be, as far as the living out of those truths, is to be undergirded with love. And the more I looked at this, the more I went, oh my gosh. So when you are looking at a difficult passage like this one in chapter 11, where it speaks about a subject of, of covering of heads that is not a tradition that we have in our churches today on the whole, although there are some that do, but that is not here on the whole, then I thought to myself, you know, what we really need to do is, number one, go back and review just a few of these principles about how love is edified, how that's demonstrated. In order to streamline it, we're only going to hit chapters 8, 9, and 10, and it's fresher in your mind, hopefully, right? So let's go back and you tell me concerning the fact that love edifies. What do you remember about that? What, look at, let's, let's go back. Let me just, let me just set you up a little bit here. Let's go to chapter 8 at the beginning of it, where he makes that statement about that love edifies, right? Um, now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, okay? Now, just like in chapter 11, where we don't have the head coverings in most of our um, Protestant chapels, or Protestant chapels, now oh, I went to the military, sorry, our, our Protestant um, churches, we also do not did not have idolatry in the form that they faced in that day right were we able to take the subject matter of eight and make it applicable to us yes very very easily all we had to do was transfer the concept of the subject matter do you remember i kept saying to you when i was teaching that it's not about this, uh, the the he used idolatry as his tool to systemically address a problem right? There's an undergirding truth that he's conveying and he's using their 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 climate, their environment, their experience uh, with idolatry and saying, this is how you would handle a problem of this magnitude or of this type and how I want you to, to deal with it in your life. And so he goes through chapters 8, 9, and 10 and handles that. So he starts out by saying, um, Concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge, and knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Now what does that mean, he is known by him? Someone explain that to me now that we've done it. Okay, so you're saying that You, Celeste, are known by God. Okay, that's one way of looking at it. Okay, no, but that's okay, and it's fine. It's fine. What I want to do is to take this to, I want you to evaluate what he's actually saying here a little bit more carefully. What does he mean by that? Why would he say that in that context of sentence? Does that message make sense in what he's saying here, that God will know you? But is that is that the message of that those three verses? It just takes people do not think they sometimes we think we know too much. Okay. If you're talking about the arrogant the arrogance quality in contrast to us knowing too much, okay, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: <laughs> I think it's hard it's, it's upon the world and it's stupid. It, it's not, it, it's
0: not. It's okay. Okay, remember this is an instruction to the church. He's trying to help them ha- know how to handle a problem. And he's saying then in your interpretation that there's no way to really know God fully. Does that even make sense? No. So I want to challenge you to look at what is being said here. I know it's a little bit tricky, but when it finally dawned on me what he's actually saying, it makes perfect sense. So in I'm using scripture to scripture. Good job. Okay. How about another scripture? There you go. Martha, you get the star for the day, my dear. And that's a verse I didn't think of. That is another one. The one who actually loves me, what do they do? They keep my commandments. They obey me. They demonstrate what? my love. They demonstrate me to the world. 1 John chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, almost the whole book, but particularly I think it's in chapter 2, it talks about how do you know the difference between the children of the devil and the children of God? By their what? Love. By their love. By their love for one another. If you love your brother, then you really love God. So in the text here, what he starts out in chapter 8 saying is, he says, well, knowledge makes arrogant, but love is what edifies. And when you're talking to me about this subject, this difficult thing of how do you deal with idolatry in your midst, what I want you to know is this first and foremost, that he, he, um, is that um, anyone who loves God, he is known by God. He is known by God's love lived out in him, through him. He is known by the way he treats his brother. Now, does that actually flow with the next things that come up next? Have we seen verses where he says that you're to love your neighbor as yourself, you're not to live in selfishness, you're not to, right? So known by God really means that you, Susan, I know God by your behavior, because you're demonstrating God in the world. So as you deal with me concerning a difficult thing like idolatry and eating the, the foods that are, are sacrificed, because in that day that was a real problem for them, do I eat or do I not? What does Paul tell them back in, in verse 8 now when you follow the thought down? It do, the food does not matter. It's not whether you eat or whether you don't eat. What does matter? Love, yeah. He says, he, he closes it in verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 13. He says, if my eating food causes my brother to stumble, what? I will never eat meat again. If that's what it takes, is that a demonstration of God's love in me? So when you go back to that, if anyone loves God, he is known by him. He is, he is known by him being in you because of the way that you live, by the way that you treat others, by the way that you respond. That's what he's saying here. He's saying I, they will know you are Christians by your love. So if you know God, you should be living it out. We better be seeing it in your actions. Is that making sense to you at all? That verse, if you take it to the other side and try to put it into the realm of the the knowing of God, meaning your salvation and your relationship with God, you've left the flow of thought to do that. <laughs> and what you're saying is true, absolutely, that, you know, everything that all of us kind of just threw out there, and me too, when I first did this, when I was first looking at it, it, it's true that I will never fully be known, I can never fully know God, not until I see him face to face, right? Um, that I could um, maybe, at uh, least I forgot the verse you said, it was, um, yeah, where it said, um, what was the message there that about <coughs> being known by, uh, we are, we, we know God, known by God? Okay, that's really the heart. If you really do know God, people are gonna know God by your your behavior hmm mm-hmm. He is known by him or by his love. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying love, yes he, God is love. Right, well, we can take it further and and go way, way, way beyond. What I'm trying to do is narrow it down so that the flow of conversation makes sense. Because if we leave it and go into a different subject matter, then it doesn't fit with what he follows it with. But if he makes the statement that if you actually love God, you are known by the love of God that's in you. you 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 That's true. That's so true, but that's not the qualifier that he brings up. He brings up the qualifier that we need to be known by is love. Okay, so yay! Now that your mind is where I'm at, I want to make a little bit of a list that reviews what we've learned about love edifying. In A1, love edifies. So, um, what did he say in eight nine? Then, what do we be, because of love? What? Love does what? Okay, love uh, does not cause a brother to stumble. Okay, that's one point we've learned already. And we know that that was speaking in relationship to the subject of eating foods sacrificed to idols, which we don't have that in our society today, but is the truth still relevant to us that we are not to cause a brother to stumble by anything that we do? And if we are careful, if we're paying attention, if we take care, as it says, then this is love that edifies, correct? And therefore, we are showing or demonstrating the love of God, yes. Well, that's a different subject. Well yeah. Because, because, because it's a totally different you know. Right. Well, and that is really a different subject matter too. I mean, if you get into the meat of what that verse is talking about there, he's talking about the rejection of the Jews against him and who he is, and that he became a stumbling. So even though it's the same wording, it's kind of a different subject matter. So I I don't want to go there too much. Okay. All right. So now, go on from there. What else do you see? Flip into chapter 9. I'm going to let you just tell me. What do you see in chapter 9 about how love is demonstrated? What is Paul encouraging them to do? And give me your, your verse wherever you're finding something. How does Paul demonstrate love in chapter 9? How does he, what does he exhort us to do? Okay, concerning his apostleship, he had rights, correct? But what did he do concerning his rights? Yeah, so he does, so basically then he does not, huh? Um, Well, all of them in there. Tell me what you're thinking, Robert. It's okay. (laughs) Okay. So it doesn't demand to make use of rights, correct? So this is very interesting because I do think. That already I can see an application of this particular point in first Corinthians eleven just because you have a right women doesn't mean that you should demand it at the expense of right what the the goal, which is what what is our goal as god 's children to edify. to edify and to love our neighbor and to win souls and to preach the gospel right so in nine um, you said twelve. I had 18 anywhere in there, almost all of them in that whole thing. Uh, Love does not demand its rights. And do we have rights as women? Do we? Absolutely. But demanding your rights at the expense of someone else is the Issue that's go. This the undergirding issue that's going on in this particular chapter eleven. What else do you see we are supposed to do about concerning love in chapter nine? Yeah. Okay. Okay, and that's in verse what? Okay. Okay, very good. So love, if it's demonstrated well in your life, men and women, but in particular we're talking about the women's issue, uh, women's issue here, but it doesn't demand its right, and it, um, it becomes a slave to all. In other words, it becomes amenable, right, in, in whatever circumstance, that as long as you're not falling into sin or not walking into sin, as long as it's something that glorifies God, and it retains the standard of sound doctrine, then it is best if you and I become a slave to all, as Paul says. Paul says, to the Jews, what? He became a Jew. To the Gentiles, he became a Gentile, right? To those with the law, he acted as though he were under the law. For those without the law... He taught them the liberties and the freedoms, right? So this is what he's speaking in 19. Uh, What about, let's go down to 25 to 27. What do you see there? Concerning love. Yep. Love exercises self-control and discipline. Right? Are you seeing an application into chapter 11 yet? We haven't quite got there, but this is what love does. Love... Exercises discipline <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, they sure weren't. The Lord's Supper was really a mess and and the concept of women apparently there was a problem, wasn't there in the church? The, remember he's answering questions and although he doesn't give us the actual question. He just gives, it's kind of like, is it Jeopardy that does that? gives you the answer and you have to come up with the question? That's kind of what we're doing with it. We're playing Jeopardy with Paul. Didn't know that, did you? (laughs) Okay, love exercise discipline and self-control. That's what love does. So that's how love edifies. Um, Now going to chapter 10. You could say also about winning souls. I, no evangelists in here this morning, huh? Love seeks the good uh, to win souls, right? What do you see in verse chapter 10? What does love do? That word edify is in 23. That might be a good marker to drop into somewhere in there. Okay, so in 10... Uh, Twenty-four. Love seeks the good of his neighbor, and and the contrast is, but does not seek after just his own good, right, or or for his own good, but he does so for the sake of a neighbor. Any others? Yes, okay. Love, let's go 10. um, Okay, 31. Love gives God glory, right, or does all things for God's glory. Boy, doesn't it? You, I, I, that is what, for me, when I was making this list, all of a sudden I went, oh, 1 Corinthians 13. Of course. And I went, boy, isn't that interesting how he's, he actually brings the subject of love up in it. But if you go back actually to chapter 1, he initiates it with loving God above all. Love God, love the Lord your God with all your heart. You could almost break this into, t- into those two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then starting in eight, love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that amazing? And so if you really see, I have come to, at this point in my uh, viewing of First Corinthians on the whole, it really is the book of love. The whole book is about love, even though it doesn't seem that way in the beginning. The more you dive into it, the, the, the undergirding message in everything that he talks about is how you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ treat one another and what our really our highest calling is, is that we <laughs> glorify God, that we please God. And it, it, the only way to do that is, no matter what the problem is that comes your way, go down deep and say, is this a loving response? Is this going to really demonstrate love? Now, here's what's interesting. Remember back in chapter 5, he said about the immoral man, do what? Okay. Expel him. Is that loving? Yeah. Why is it loving? Yes, as a matter of fact, there's a statement in there. He says, I, as for my part, I have already condemned him, and I am handing him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that what? That his soul might be saved in the day of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? So sometimes holding people's feet to the fire, sometimes disciplining, sometimes even judging, is actually love that edifies. It's loving to the rest of the body of Christ who's seeing the d- demonstration of what's righteous and what's unrighteous, and you're holding people to that. Plus, it also is, in a way, loving to the person who's in that sin. You, what you're going to do by cutting off your relationship with them, in the, in the case of 1 Corinthians 5, um, you're letting him know that there are consequences for that kind of behavior, and it's not, it's not permittable. And if you're in a relationship with God, one of two things is going to happen to that immoral man. He's either going to do what? Change his way. He's going to repent. Or maybe he never knew God at all. Or maybe, there you go. You're forcing him to decide, are you a Christian or are you not? If you actually love God, you need to repent and come back into right relationship, which means you have to live a life of holiness, right? Because God is holy, you are to be holy. But if if you don't, then... Maybe you were never his or possibly you are his, but God will do what? Judge you. We're gonna talk about that in First Corinthians eleven, aren't we? Okay, so love gives God. What about in um okay, I wanna conclude this with a verse in twenty-three, ten twenty-three. What does love know? There we go. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable or, or how does it say it there, Martha? All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Okay, profitable. Yeah, and that was in which verse? Okay. Okay. Right. That's close enough anyway. It's still it's the same message, right? Not all things are profitable, meaning not all things edify. So, now are you already feeling better about chapter 11? Just by doing this much by setting the the proper context. This is the flow of thought that this author has. This is and also what this is going to do is it's going to hold to some of the doctrines that we know are true, right? There's another thing, another doctrine, just to balance the context with a little bit more with doctrine, um, do you remember what the conclusion was about the eating of food? I want to just repeat it. I know we just said it, but I just want to repeat it. What did we come to a conclusion about eating? Does it matter what you eat or don't eat? Not really, because why? Concerning the false idols in in that day, and also for that matter, any day, but false idols, idolatry, what do you know is true about idols and demons? They're, they're nothing, right? Although there are demons, but they don't mean anything. They're not a god. And idolatry, other idols, other gods don't exist. There are no other gods. They're figments of man's imagination. So Knowing that, this is where he says in the opening, knowledge, however, can puff up. So you can say, look, there's no such thing as, I, as idols, so I'm going to eat whatever I want. I don't care what you think. What, is, what, what have I just done with my knowledge? Have I been edifying or have I been puffed up? Is it, See? See the interpretation now on that? That's what he was saying there. He says, your, your knowledge can puff you up so that you stand indignant against everything else around you and you don't care what other people think. I don't care what you think because I know that there's no such thing as an idol, so I'm just going to eat whatever I want. Yes, but what if your brother is watching you and it's hurting him? He doesn't get it yet. He's not that far along in his faith walk. What should you be doing? Yeah. You should be considering his needs above your own. Right? Wow. Right on. Okay. Lesson one done. Now let's move on to the next part now. So now what we want to do is we want to go in and look at, um, uh, well, like, Let's go into chapter one, and we are going to break chapter one, Chapter 11. We're going to break chapter 11 down into two parts. How did you see Chapter 11 break? Where is the break in chapter 11? Do you see more than one subject going on in this chapter? Yes, two subjects. What is the first subject? about head coverings. It was a question that was practical to them, just as the idol worship was a practical question back in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Now in 11, he addresses it. Very interesting though, he spent 8, 9, and 10 on that subject of the idolatry issues, but in this one, he addresses this one in how many verses? 16, 1 through 16. So in in chapter 11, 1 through 16, we have our first subject. And so we need to break down what the flow of thought is and what's going on. So tell me what were your key words in this first segment. Man and woman was one of the major things. So what we see here, just by that alone, what does that set up? If you get a list, you go, okay, men and women. What does that kind of do mentally to you as you're studying the, the, the text itself? It makes you do a comparison. And in some ways, it almost pits them against one another to some degree. It can, right? Is this a controversial passage? Yes. Can you see how people who don't really understand it and don't take the time to do what we we are doing with, you know, the process here, how they can end up taking something like this and making it very divisive? Um, you know, there's going to be another real divisive subject that's going to come up when you get into this spiritual gifting, right? What is that subject? And he spends a lot of time on it. What is it? Speaking in tongues. Yeah. This the, the issue of speaking in tongues to this day is very controversial. And churches have been formed over the misunderstanding of what's said in that about that one particular gift, right? Because they take the context, they they remove the points or the bullet statements that they want out of the context and try to make some doctrine off of it rather than holding it back to the, the full counsel of God's word. When you look at the subject of spiritual gift, there are four major passages that teach on that as a subject matter. And if you do the spiritual gifts class inductively, you get all four of them, you pull them all together, and you get the full picture of what the purpose is of spiritual gifts, how they're received, who gives them what they're for. And when you do that and then go back into something like 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, you get a better picture of understanding. So we are going to go now through this, I think, what could be difficult. And I don't think it's as difficult um, once we retain our standard and hold to um, um, the, the doctrines that we know are true. The first doctrine that we know is true, it doesn't matter what you eat or don't eat. I, I was asking earlier, is there another passage that supports what he says in First Corinthians? Yes, there is. First, uh, there's several, actually. But Romans 14 is almost a parallel to the, that subject about the eat, what to eat and what not to eat. He says, now, except the one who is weak in faith, remember the weak brother, right? Mm-hmm. But not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. So again, when you start treating someone with contempt because of of something that they are holding to, how would you describe that relationship? How would you would you take a person that you see is running uh, basically their life through an attitude of contempt or um uh disregard for other people's opinions or th- or thoughts? How would you describe that person? Right. Yeah, yeah, very good. That's a good one. Narcissistic would be one because it's all about me, right? And so, and so I would say that, first, that Romans 14 passage shows us a direct contrast to what he is being sa- saying to us here, and that is that if you know God, you're known by him. You are known by his love, by the way that you treat other people. Okay, now tell me what you see in uh, those first few verses. In 1 Corinthians 11. Okay, I think we can actually add that up here. Paul begins in 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. Now, has he said that before? And where was that? Four something. Uh, four, six, <laughs> yeah. Flip back to chapter four, verse (laughs) sixteen. He said it in 4.16 as well, so he's and this has been really kind of neat the way, and it's very Pauline. He often in his, um, in all of his teachings, he'll, he drops in a little hint about about various kinds of things, and then he comes back around to it and picks it back up again and adds to it, so that very often if you want a full picture of certain things, you almost have to pick up on these key subjects or these key phrases or, or statements, and then go back and pull them all together in a list and get the full picture of what he's saying. But he's saying basically be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. He is saying of himself therefore just what he said in chapters 8, 9 and 10 that he becomes a what? servant to all. He becomes a Jew to the Jews, he becomes a Gentile to the Gentiles. He does all things for the sake of the gospel. He is living his life out to honor God. So, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. So, in doing that, being an imitator, he gives, um, he gives them that first, well, I'm just going to put verses 1 and 2, that he, he first says is that he praises them because, why? What is it that he exhorts them for actually doing? Holding to the teaching, to the traditions that were taught you, right? Now, you and I looked at that word traditions. What did you come to conclude about what that's talking about? What kind of traditions is this? Is this traditions of men or traditions that are about God and of God? Uh, That's right. We're not talking about See, because this is an interpretation. Did you find that? That some of your commentaries said, oh, well, y- you know, what they're talking about here about these head coverings, this is all about the traditions of the time, and that's why it doesn't apply to us today. Does that make any sense at all to you? Why God would inspire a passage that has no application for us? And why would it be in the canonized word and retained for us all these generations later? I also think it it's a man tradition. There you go. So the fact that he says hold firmly to it is a clue, isn't it? That he's talking about something more than the traditions of men. So he's saying, I'm passing on to you traditions, but what kind of traditions are they? Does anybody have those scriptures handy that you could go back and look at by chance on the traditions? It's on day two, page 86. Okay, read one one of the ones that you think fits here. Yeah, so that one was the contrast, and then how did he follow it up? He says, um, in Colossians 8.2, he says, you're holding to those according to men, but what was the contrast? What should they be holding to rather than according to Christ? So these are the traditions according to Christ. According to Colossians, was it 1.3? No? No. 2-8, Two eight, thank you. Two eight. And we do that today. I think that means, I think what he said is there is very eligible. Churches have a tendency to want to hold tradition as opposed to following the channel. Yes. As a matter of fact, think about the Jewish system of law. By the da- time of the days of Christ, what was the what was Judaism doing? Superseding the commandments. Yeah. They had they took it so far that men were basically violating the basic principle of God's doctrine God's law in order to fulfill the traditions of the church and they were manipulating their laws for whose benefit for their own benefit to line their own pockets and that what how does that affect people you tell me how does that affect people when they see things like that happening that hypocrisy and that kind. This is why when he says you are known by him, meaning you are known by his love, that is not love. And when people claim to be a Christian but live like that, what, then people say you're a hypocrite. And if that's the way Christians are, I don't want to. I don't want to be one. I don't want to have anything to do with that right? Okay, so he opens by saying, first of all, I want you to hold to the traditions, not just to any tradition, and he's not speaking about traditions of men. You need to put in your text, in your Bible, that this is speaking about God's laws, God's principles, God's traditions, the things that God has laid down for us. This is not speaking of traditions of men, and I do think that this is another reason why sometimes people misinterpret the rest of this chapter. All right, so hold to the traditions according to Christ, meaning God's word, God's law. Okay, then you're going to go to three, uh, verse. well, I'm just going to make it separate. Look at verse three and give me what you think is God's message in three. And I, I, I wish we had more room to just do the whole thing, but what do you see in verse three? Isn't that interesting? I love the way you put that. That's the chain of command. That's how I always interpret it. The chain of command. It, okay. Okay. Now, how do you see it? Uh, okay. Okay. But okay. But but listen. But does it end at the end with with what does it say about God? God is the head of Christ. So, if you were to I'm just going to write it up here. Who's it says concerning I don't have the list in front of me. So, you help me out. Make the list. Okay. Christ is the head of every man. Okay. Man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man, man every is head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. God is head of Christ okay now would you say so we got taught we have the top we have a systemic so we have women down here at the bottom of the pecking order is that how you look at it that there's a pecking order here and and an order of importance men do look at it like that No. Yes. Exactly. You're right. Yes, okay. You are. He, in is that so, Sarah? Is that a correct interpretation? I know, I don't think so because at least you does
1: not have love in in it. It's just
0: right. So because if you look at this from a chain of command, a chain of order, <laughs> who is second in the chain? No, is Jesus less than God? Is his position? Demeaning or under the foot of God, so that God tramples on him, or a, or in any way is superior over him in an attitude of arrogance or this puffed up knowledge that we've got here as a context. Yes, it is now. Yes, very good. Now, so isn't it lovely when you just start looking? Yes. There you go. So in he says, in the Lord, he says, however, in the Lord, there is neither male or female. Now, what does he mean by that? basically saying you guys are equal in God's eyes in the Lord a man and a woman there is no distinction from the perspective of a of a linear chain of command right that's exactly right the jews and the and the greeks are this that's a good point robert i hadn't thought of that one that's a, that's right the one that to me is the most profound um kind of the, the key that unlocks the understanding of this is the fact that Christ is under the headship of God in this, quote, chain of command. But it's not really a chain of command. It's uh, Rather than chain of command, you know what a better phraseology might be? It's an order. Right. There's a, an assigned role or an... Ass, there. Yeah, okay, there's a flow. But <laughs> there is a designed order. Is Christ in a place where... Um, only he can hold and he has to fulfill that in order for the plan to f- be functional and to be fulfilled. Okay, so if he said, No, I don't want to do it, what? We would have no cross, we would have no shed blood, we would have no new covenant in him, we would have no forgiveness of sin, we would still be dead in our sin right? We would still have, the only thing we would, well, we would still have the faith of Abraham, looking forward to him, but if he had refused, we would be in trouble. I want you to go to Philippians chapter 2, and everyone is real familiar with this one, but there's a passage in Philippians 2, I didn't write it down, Uh, yes I did, 2, 5 to 16, somebody read that for us, because I think this sets up, again, to help your concept about this order that people are in. Yes. Martha, thank you. Yeah. Martha uh, y- y- yes. Have this attitude in yourself, which
1: is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that
0: every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the father wow does that sound to you like a subordinate position isn't that amazing? So just by observing the test and asking a couple of questions about this, quote, chain of command, but it's really not a chain. It's an order and it's a position. I think that once you see that, then you're going to get into these next verses and be able to handle them correctly as is intended for him and his audits. Right. And there ha- would you actually go so far as to say there really does have to be some order? Have you ever been into a friend's home or, a per- or into a work environment where there is total chaos? I remember a, a, one of my uh, children's school teachers. Uh, oh, my gosh. It was total chaos chaos in her room i went in as a helper i only helped twice i couldn't go back i i was so frazzled because of it the kids are running helter skelter there was absolutely no order and there was no discipline my daughter was a wreck and it's no mo- no wonder why in the end i was trying to get her out of that class and um the lady retired out of the blue <laughs> thank you Lord, <Lauren. laughs> and she got a new teacher but it was crazy when you have chaos and nobody has an order or an assigned role um Lois, you're the administrator, uh, you know, par excellence. How important is order and having things in a system for you to be able to actually accomplish? Yeah. And without order and without assigned have you ever had um anybody tell you even in disciple have you have most of you in here been discipled by someone at some point in your Christian walk? One of the first things that m- most discipling programs do is say they want you to sit down, assess where you're at, and then they want you to set goals, right? And they say, where would you like to see yourself in in six months, in a year, in three years, in five years? So if you can get that far out, I don't think I could, but Lois could for sure, <laughs> right? So people who people who want to actually accomplish something need order, right? They need a place. Have you ever heard um, uh, the saying that you have you you know you can't all be the baseball uh, the pitcher? You have you can't play a game without the whole field full, right? You, ca- you can't run a baseball game if everybody's on the pitching mound and nobody's in the outfield catching, right? You need all the players in their proper place doing their assigned role so that when the ball's hit to left field, there's someone out there to catch it. If if there's a pop-up ball, the person that, you know, behind the pit, the pitcher's mound, what do they the catcher, the ca- <laughs> you know. I'm, I'm such a great sports person, I should not use these analogies. <laughs> but it, but if the catcher is not there doing his job, what? it doesn't get done. So order is by God's design and it's so essential. And so the fact that God gave order, at what point did God give order? The order of place for, for people and events and things. And From before the foundation of the world, Christ was determined, he was predestined to come and be the Savior. So even before God created Adam and Eve in the garden, he knew that the created being he would create would sin and that there would be a need for a Savior. And so it was all planned even from before that. Christ himself was in agreement with the Father and submitted himself to the Father in his role. Isn't that an amazing thought? So order, this order is not demeaning. And I really want you to not look at it in that way ever, ever again. I want you to understand that men and women in the Lord, there's neither male nor female. He looks at them equally. They each have a designed role. It's distinct and it's different, yes. However, it's not, it's not that one is greater or better than the other. They each have their design purpose. Mhm every man over every woman. No, that's true. Okay. Oh, in in the in the that's true. In the relationship of husband and wife because what he's speaking about there is in the creation time too. You know that in the beginning that this is how God created them and it was Adam and Eve and Adam was over his wife. So obviously it has to go back to husband wife relationship that he is over his own wife however is it true Susan that in the church there are men over us that are not our husbands yeah Yeah. and they're over men too yes so again though there's order correct right there's again yeah no I know. I know. And Susan, the point that you bring up is what some people want to do with this too is they want to isolate this to only be husband and wife, and then therefore it disqualifies them in every other way. And therefore, in the church, women have no responsibility to submit to any man in the church who is a leader because it's not her husband. And that's how they view it. Is that a correct interpretation? First of all, if you go back to love edifies, what do you do? You become a slave to all for the sake of love and displaying God's love, and for the sake of bringing people into salvation, and that might require that you submit to an authority of someone over you, right? Um, we we don't have the time, but w- what about marriage itself? Is marriage a depiction of something? Christ and His Church, right? So if that's the if that's the depiction there, that's the image. Uh, I've said before that, you know, don't mess with God's pictures. There's a reason God has this design and order. It's to display something, to be symbolic of something. Have you heard that word symbolic in our passage today? No. I'm talking about the woman. A symbol of what? authority over her. So there are things that are symbolic that picture something that give a spiritual truth to it, but there are sometimes symbolic things. In a marriage, we have the symbolism in the relationship between a husband and wife and how it relates to Christ in the church. And the comparison is made there. It's not, you know, it's not comparing apples and oranges, he's actually saying, I want you to make a direct comparison, that just as Christ loves the church, the husband is to what? Love his wife. And just as Christ is the head of the church, what? The man is the head of the wife. We see all this in Ephesians chapter 5. So there are designed roles they're for the purpose of order, they're for the purpose of accomplishing a set or predetermined goal or program, right? We know God has one. And what we see here then is women are not subor- subordinate in a lesser position, but they are in a dis- distinct, by design, a distinct role. Right? All right. So, and by, f- by the very nature of things, we see that. So I'm just going to put on here, he- um, God is the head. He actually repeats it at the, uh, down at the bottom. He says, not only is he the head, but God is what in verse 12? everything originates from him god is the head all things originate from god or yeah i think that's right is that 11 12 i also think one of the things to take away from learning this is that there's a proper relationship and it doesn't take much for satan to urge us along absolutely just just this right here has been perverted so much that, 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 therefore, two things can happen. Either women feel demeaned, and people, women who already have within them a contentiousness just by nature, some do, some don't. I won't tell you which I am. Um, and some, some feel demeaned in it, but there's also the other side of that. Sometimes men like to use it in that manner as a tool. And so then that causes what for women to do? To rebel against it. Yeah. Or to submit it and become doormats, right? Yeah. Mhm. And if she has any religious background that's taught her that she's to be, yeah. Yeah. She should have read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, right? That says you can leave, you just have to, you know, not remarry. <laughs> all right. So, all right. I'm going to erase this so that we can move on because this has been, this has been really good already. We've got some great foundation. So he says, therefore, now he goes on and he says, now in 4 to 6, what is the message? He's giving an instruction to women. Yes. So he says, cover your head, because that was what was acceptable and and standard, so you do not disgrace it. Yes. Isn't this a neat thing, how this flows once you get the, the real message going on here? Seven to nine, he says what? What are men supposed to do? Now, there's an instruction to men now. Before, it was an st- instruction to men or to women. Now, he says about men. Men what? Do not <laughs> cover your head. Why? Now, this one takes a little bit more working through, but why? Because you are in the image of God. Now, if a man does cover his head, shame on you. (laughs) Okay, now, if a man does cover his head, what is he doing that would be equal to a woman who won't cover her head? Again, he would be shaming, right? Because why? He is to honor the glory of God. Or uh, to put it another way, he is to honor the order that God has put him in, the place he has put him in. Yes. Yes. You know, what's really interesting is when you go back to the creation, which is what she had us do, she had us go back into Genesis um, to kind of look at these things, and what, let me, hold on a second here, let me see if I can find it, Um, the order. In uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 31, and also 2, 18 to 25, I think she gave us the chapter 2 one. But if you go back to chapter 1, let's do that together. Look, look at Genesis 1, 26 to 31. I want someone to read that because we're talking about why a man is not to cover his head. And if he does, if, if not covering his head is, God's, is honor to God, what is covering his head? would be dishonoring. So do not dishonor God. So covering his head would be dishonoring to God. So this is very interesting. We've now taken a subject that was about women covering their head, and we brought men into the picture. Men have just as much responsibility to to down at that fundamental principle to not disgrace but to honor. We both have the responsibility. men and women. This is not just a women's subject, although everybody goes in here and only sees the woman part, right? Okay, read Genesis one twenty six to 31. Who has that? Good, thank you, Lisa. Well, yeah, you don't have to. It's fine. I think we made our point. So what is the point in the, In what we just read there? What did you hear about the creation of both men and women? Both created in God's image. Therefore, we are both God's glory, right? However, in the context of this passage, what he's actually talking about, he's not saying man is, in, is the glory of God and therefore women are not. That is not what it's saying. Right, It's where we go with it, but that is not what is actually said there. He is simply saying, if a man covers his head, what? He's not giving God his glory. Where did God put man in the order of the creation? Now we went to Genesis 2 in our homework. In the creation of uh, men and women, what was the order? men first and then the woman so by that fact that God made a distinction in the creation order what does that tell us about these two beings who are both neither male nor female in the Lord but yet they are what well they are they were created one out of the other and but concerning their roles what there's distinction so god created them distinctively for distinctive roles right is it obvious to everyone in this room that women and men are not the same we are not physically the same spiritual sorry Amen. And aren't we glad? (laughs) I can tell you, you know, as much as I get fussing about my husband on occasions, I praise God for my husband. He is different than me. He thinks different than I do. He handles life in a different way. Was that God's design purpose from the beginning? Now, here's another question. When you go into Genesis chapter 3, did she take us there? Okay. Genesis chapter 3. What happens in Genesis chapter 3? Yes, a big problem. Go to 3, somebody, and read for me 16 to 19. I want you to just refresh your mind about what was going on in the garden and where things went so badly wrong. Yeah, I just want you to read 16 to 19, chapter 3. Because this is after they have sinned, and now God is going to do something. Now, that statement there, your desire should be for your husband, has to do with authority and posi- positioning, uh, needing his authority over us, actually. Go ahead. Okay, I have always said I wish that precept ministry would come up with a topical study on the designed roles of men and women and teach it biblically so that men and women understand how their roles are complementary, not in opposition, and there's not a subordination other than for the purpose of order. Now, for the man, God designed man for basically three things. They are to be the the provider, they're to be the protector, and they're to be the priest over the home. They, that is their role. Who did God give the commandments to in, not to eat of the tree? Who did He give that command to? That would be Adam, right? Okay. But what happened when they when when the sin came into the into the picture? Who did what? Yes, she was. And yet, this is interesting. Go to uh, Romans chapter five. Somebody read verse fourteen and then read eighteen and nineteen. I just want you to see how God's perspective is. Even though it was Eve that ate, what does God say about that scenario? I know I'm making you guys work today, aren't I? (laughs) Romans um, five fourteen and then eighteen and nineteen. I know. Okay, so whose offense was this in the, in the garden? The offense of Adam. Okay, now go to 18 and 19. Even though it was Eve that ate, whose offense was this? God considered it Adam's offense, okay? Okay, now I love that passage. That's all about the federal headship of being in Christ or being in Adam. In Adam, we are still in sin. In Christ, we are redeemed. Okay, but aside from that, what you learn from that is going back to Genesis chapter 3, what you see is the offense in God's from God's perspective was Adam's. Why? Because he was there, but thank you. Robert nailed it. He, he was the head. What was God's design role for man from the beginning? He was to be the priest, the provider, and the protector. Where was he in protecting Eve uh, when the, Satan showed up? No. Now, not to lay all the blame on the men, because we're not going to do that here. What did Eve do in negating her role? What is her design role as woman? The first is she's to be the help mate to the husband. That's her first thing. The second one is an obvious thing. What is that? What do women do? They bear children and rear them, right? And then they are to be the home care giver primarily. That is the design role. Boy, are we messing that one up in our world today, big time. Do you think it's hurting our world? Do you think it's hurting our families, our nation, our everything is getting turned upside down in its head the man is to be the provider the protector and the high, and the priest he's supposed to spiritually lead the family she is supposed to undergird him help him by supporting him by being his helpmate by prov- by bearing the children and, and rear- being the primary rearer of those children and by caring for the home right now if we if we negate that how did Eve negate that problem she was supposed to what concerning leading yeah, no. no not leading she was supposed to what? She didn't go to her husband. She didn't let him lead. And he didn't protect her. He let her lead. Yeah, watch it. Watch it. No. <laughs> Most men can, absolutely. Now, that's not to say that there's not balance in every family, and women have some, and men have others. God always puts us together in that way, but the role assigned by God, not by us in our society today, the, the assigned role for a man is he is to be the spiritual leader of his home, he is to provide for his home, and he is to protect his home. And he, he wasn't doing that. Likewise, Eve did not follow her husband she did not go to him for his protection right when the when the serpent came up against her yes that's exactly right we are for that. S- perfect segue lisa what do you see in chapter 11 that demonstrates what she's talking about. Is there a rebelliousness that undertones this? Do you see where what's going on in this church is some kind of rebellion about these women in this church that did not want to submit to God's designed roles and authority for women? Even though the symbolic subject matter is the covering of heads, it really goes systemically deeper than that. It's about contentiousness. Did you mark that key word? What? Somebody look that word up and define it, anybody? I have it somewhere, if you didn't, but I was hoping you did. Okay, strife-loving, very interesting. Um, Strife-loving. Let me see if I'm going to find mine. Looking for contentious, where is it? There it is. Contentions. Fond of strife. Contentious. It also says quarrelsome or argumentative, right? So in the case of Eve and Adam in the garden, do you think that Eve was striving against and being contentious toward Adam's role as her provider and leader or as her protector and leader in those two roles? Do you think that's what led her to go and be become a victim then to the temptations of Satan I'm I'm, a, I'm asking very rhetorical questions here the the answer is always yeah <laughs> yes pardon Jesus Jesus loving God and all that yes in covenant <laughs> that's right okay all right so now okay so having walked through that God's creation order I just want you to say it's not a punishment God did not Put, put women under men because of a punishment, was it already in place before the sin occurred? Before God said to woman, this is what I'm going to do because of this sin. N- none of that was in play when God created them. He created man first, he created man, woman second, and in that design order, that's how it was. That's how God sent, said it. That is why, because God said, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman, and God is over Christ. But don't forget this men and women are the same in the Lord and God is the originator of all. It puts it brings it back down to an equalizing thing. This is not about subordination uh, or demeaning, it's about roles. It's designed roles. Isn't this a great lesson? I love this. Huh? Yes, it sure is, and it's sad. and a lot of it is because number one, people are not studying this the way they should to get the context down and to get the understand. You know, look at how many verses we had to pull in. We had to go into Genesis. We had to go into Ephesians. We went into I think we went into Peter. You know, if you don't pull all these things together, and again, to set the standard of doctrine down. What did God design from the beginning? And in the beginning, when God created man first and woman second, was it to be mean to a woman and put her under the thumb of a man? No. It was just a designed order. And what that designed order shows us, reveals to us, is we're distinct in some way. Although we are the same in in the Lord, in our relationship with the Lord, we have distinct roles to play in life. Um, not really, because that was already in place before. Man had been created first, woman second, and the rules of of their defined... Yes, but no, all that says is her desire will be for her husband. And that he will rule over her. Maybe, yeah. and, and Right, I agree, I agree. However, what I want to define for you and make sure you get is that those defined roles of him being the leader and the head of her was already in place before the punishment came. I think that's where we get confusion. We often do go there and say, Oh, well, he, she's under his authority because of the garden sin. No, she was already under his authority from the beginning in the creation. And as a matter of fact, at, at the end of day, one and day or chapter 1 and chapter 2, and God saw all that he had created, and it was very good and that means perfect in its place of sinless perfection until the sin entered in chapter 3. So it was already in place. All right, Um, so that's where then I I also showed you about Jesus in Philippians 2, so we went there too. Okay, so now we have uh, 7 to 9 is that. Uh, Let's go to, we're probably only going to get through this women's thing, it looks like. I hate this that we can't do. Now, what about 10? There's one statement in 10, and boy, is this one also controversial. I don't know why, Um, but because of the angels, okay? So he's saying, hold to the traditions, and then he says, because of the angels. Now, what can that mean? Well, he doesn't explain it. However, he has mentioned angels once before in Corinthians, correct? Do you remember back when we were in this, the subject of us uh, needing to make judgments? Okay, and that one day it was one of the things he says, we will actually judge the angels. Now, although he doesn't elaborate on it, we can probably go into a, different po- a couple of different possibilities for what might be, and they would both be correct, and it Honestly, it apparently doesn't really matter. He didn't elaborate on it. But just for the sake of kind of satisfying your curiosity on it, what might be interpretations about the angels? What does he mean? First, you have to say to yourself, what's the subject matter of what's going on here? What is the subject matter on the whole? Yeah, and these women are being what? Contentious, right? this rebellion that's going on with these women against this idea of a symbol of authority over them. Yes. Is there ever a time in history when the angels rebelled? Ah, yes. So maybe, maybe it's speaking about that, that remember, don't, don't forget the angels. And by the way, let's see, um, it is in, hold on a second, it's got the wrong page here. Uh-huh, good. Yeah. The woman
1: has
0: a crown. Oh, I love that. That's so much better. I like that. Symbol of authority over, is her crown, which goes back to Ephesians 5 where he says, "Love. you know, a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church right um, so in many ways that kind of goes but go go to second Peter go to Peter which one is it I think it's second Peter I forgot to put it on here second Peter 2 4 to nine here's a verse you could add as a, as a footnote there's two, I'm going to give you two possible interpretations for what the angels might be. Number one, it could be that God, God judged rebellious angels, and so that's a warning to you if you're being contentious about God's authority. Both men and women, women, you are to not be contentious. You are to cover your head so that you don't disgrace, right? Men, you are not to cover your head. You are to honor God in the place that he puts you as the head, and so don't cover your head, right? All right, now um, read Second Peter 2, 4-9, somebody. Yes, the, what, the, what it is is this is an, first of all, the word symbol tells you something. It's an external symbol. We need those, don't we, for us to kind of remind ourselves about things. It's just like wearing a wedding band. It's a remembrance that you're in a vow or in a covenant with someone and not to violate that. So in this case, in the early church, they were wearing coverings on their head in the worship service, and it was a common practice that was understood, that it had to do with authority over, and when we get into spiritual gifts, you're going to find out women can speak, as a matter of fact, in this, what does it say about when women are to cover their hair, specifically, when they're praying, and when they're prophesying, what does it mean to prophesy, it's declaring the truth of God, it's preaching, it's teaching God's word, a woman can stand in the church, and preach, and teach to men, just as long as there's an authority over her head and it's understood that she's in subordination to someone, within a church context, it would be who? Yeah. Who's my, yes, my head is the pastor. He's to be my authority, right, that I answer to. So why do that? Okay, that's a perversion again, and and what they did is they took, tra- they made a tradition of men, they took something that God said, it's kind of like the phylacteries and those things, they used to Yeah, so, okay, yeah, don't go down that rabbit trail. Okay, 2 Peter 2, 4 to to 9, who has it? I want you to read it. Okay, thank you. Okay, so that passage there is all about contentiousness and rebellion. That's what the whole subject is. That could be a cross reference to you about this statement about angels. He make he drops in the statement about angels and he does not explain it. It could be that he's making a reference to the angels, saying, "Watch out! If God judged the angels, right, you can be judged too in about for rebellion." Then another way might be also. T- because of the angels, because of what he's already said in 1 Corinthians, where he talked about where we are supposed to rule one day. Someone go to Hebrews 2, and it's verses 1 to 8. And I know I'm taking you guys to a lot of cross-references today, but I really do think it helps broaden your perspective on things to help you kind of weigh it all out. Uh Uh-huh. And by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. All the way through 8? Now God did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking to angels. Okay, now this is the part I want you to hear. God is subjecting the coming world to who? Yeah. To, not to the angels, but to us. Now does, this complements what he's already said in... Um, uh, chapter, was it six or s- six, I think, it may have been five, where he's talking about you and I have an, a responsibility to make judgments of matters of this life, because we're going to ha- be judges in the, in the kingdom to come, okay? Now, God did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking to angels, but someone has testified somewhere, <laughs> that sounds like me. Yeah. Okay, so for a little while we are underneath the angels, but at some point, what are we going to be? We're going to be over the angels. We're going to be ruling and reigning. So he might be making a reference to the fact that as rulers and reigners and that we are going to even have the, the angels underneath us at some point, this concept of everyone having a designed role at a designed time in history and for a designed purpose is something you should submit to because even the angels at some point are going to become underneath our our. our uh, rulership. So it's a couple of ways of looking at it. It really, either are correct. Which one he means, we don't know. Is that okay? Yeah, it was okay with me too. Once I, but once I parsed it out, I really did want to have at least a. And that's only a couple of thoughts. There are some other thoughts too. I thought were not quite as valid. But within the context of what we were studying, the subject of contentiousness or the subject of rulership. Uh, And the head uh, order, that I thought those two were really good possibilities for the mention about the angels. Okay, so they are to hold to the traditions because of the angels, whatever that might mean. Now we're going to go to 11, um, hold on, let me get my paper here, 11 and 12. And there he says to them what? In the Lord... Yeah. Men and women are not independent. And I don't have room for the last one, so I'm just going to say 13 to 16, therefore, what? What's the final teaching, he says, hold to these traditions? What does he tell them to in verse thir, thirteen to sixteen? Judge for yourself, or don't be contentious. One of those, right? Okay, so that gets you through that first half. The second half is going to be a little quick, longer. Now I'm going to give you though a list of five things, and they're on, they're on my chart, so you don't have to write them down. I'm just going to run through them really quickly. This was a commentary that gave an apologetic, he showed how Paul apologetically laid this out as a valid reason why women should wear a head covering at that time in the church. This is what was he said. He says, number one, because of God's ordained order of headship, you should submit, right? If you got a man over you and he says this is the way it's going to be, this is how I want it to be done, if it's not violating doctrine, it's not taking you into sin, what should you do? Just submit to this because of God's design order. Secondly, God's creation order is another evidence why we should. Because the fact is, God did put the man over you. And if this is what the man's world or man's law or the church's law, if this is what they are requesting, then you should do it. It's not a punishment. It's just all it is, by the way, in that one verse, I think it was in ten or eleven or twelve writing right there, it's a symbol. It doesn't do anything except show that you are submitting to God's design order of things. That's all it's doing. So if you if you join a church and they want you to wear a head covering, what? Do it. Do it. It's all right. Wear, do it. Okay. Number three. The third thing he mentions is. Oops, my page is missing. The angels. Okay. So he he talks about the angels again. Doesn't give, you know, any kind of elaborate, but we did. We went through a couple of things to give you some point. But the third thing he uses as an apologetic reasoning why women should not rebel against this idea of wearing a head covering in the church at that time was, he said, look, think about the angels. Just kind of think on that for a second. Number four, long hair was another thing he mentioned. Did you notice? He says, well, if it's a shame for a woman to shave her head, Um, then by the nature of that, it shows you that long hair is given to women as a covering. Um, And I can't totally get into his mind on what he all implied on that, but basically he's saying here it's a universal and timeless identifying mark, the long hair of women is. And um, the fact that women have this long hair, the idea of putting a covering over it apparently is something that just by its very nature, you should understand it by, does not even nature teach you that this makes sense is kind of what he says. Right. Right. It's very interesting. Did anybody go online and do some research in, about Rome and Corinth and the head coverings of that time? If you didn't, it was very interesting. I spent probably a day and a half looking at some of that stuff. It was really good. Okay, um, uh, so here it says it's a long hair is a universal and timeless identifying mark. Uncovering her head in church worship was as disgraceful as it would be to shave her head. And so basically it's a point of obvious agreement that a woman ha- who has long hair and the idea of covering her head, it just makes sense. He's just saying by by nature you can come to that conclusion. His fifth apologetic point was it's proper in all the churches. He, he says that. He says, a head covering for women was a proper and accepted practice for worship in God's house. And Paul taught, uh, uh, and Paul taught that uh, and it was held as proper to do in all the churches. He says this in verse 13 and 16, if you want to look at that. He, he makes this first statement in 13, Judge for yourself, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? And his, his rhetorical statement is, yeah, the answer is yes, it, it would be improper for her to do that. So it's proper for her to cover her head. But then he says in 16, but if one is inclined to be contentious, about what's proper in churches in that day. He said, we have no other practice or do have the churches of God. So there was an earlier statement, I don't remember what chapter did I mark it, where he said the same thing, you know, I teach this in all the churches. You know, these are universal things that were going on in the churches at that time. Now, in our churches today, women are not, uh, by and large, wearing hats or head coverings anymore. Uh, Somewhere along the line, those contentious women went out, and now here we are today. But does it matter if we don't cover our head? Is this a sin? No, it's not. Why not? Tell me. I want to hear your apologetics on this. You have freedom in your liberty. Does anything in the external cause us to have a right or wrong relationship with God? No. No. It's all about the heart relationship. So again, you don't violate your doctrine about what you know makes you right before God. It's not that. Now, if your if your church finds that you not covering your head is a sign of disrespect or by the way, men, if you sh- you come into the church or into any covered building by military men know this, what are you supposed to do with the hat? Why? It's a sign of respect. It's are you the better or the worse if you do or you don't? No. But because people view it as a sign of disrespect, what should you do? For the sake of what? Edifying in love. And that makes sense now? The whole thing makes such sense when you get through it and you parse it. It really is not, I don't think it's as difficult as it, they seem to make it. But there are some people who who want to teach that if women are not covering their heads they're in some great sin. Well, if you go to that church please cover your head. And it's not going to hurt you to do it. You're just simply being submissive. You're you're edifying others around you by you know going with the standard and the norm. I know when I was in Turkey, that I, when I lived there, there were a lot of things I had to do in the way that I dressed that I don't do here. But I did it. Why? Not because I'm under their law, not because I'm Islamic, for sure, but why? Being respectful. As my mother would say when in Rome, do as the Romans. But as God would say, he would say, love edifies. If you are going to just be respectful and kind, and if you want to draw people into salvation, you can't do it by being contentious. Yeah. And for us to say to them, yeah. for you have to get rid of it all because you're Christian now isn't loving no. because we're not Right. They're living in an environment that that's not, and that would be total disrespect, and their husband would even be beaten on the street for allowing their wife to do that. I mean, it's a a whole, this is why I think he's got some of these things in 1 Corinthians for us, is for us to understand there is a systemic message here. The underlying message is about love. How are you edifying the environment in which you're entering into in, in your faith walk? And are you showing respect and honor to God? Men? Do not cover your head; it's dishonoring to God. Well, you know, if you wanted to be really sticky on that and get it get it out there in the whole world, it would be you can never wear a hat. Now, does that make sense? No, it doesn't. But yet, he's saying in the church, men, what? Do not cover your head. But again, it has a lot of it has to do with the tradition that was going on at that time. Yes. You made a good point about the yeah, like, put it on, yeah, well, we. Yep. They were yep. A yep. And then they now do not wear a hat. So I think it is kind of interesting how it, it's flip-flop. But I do know people that are Jews for Jesus type of thing, a lot of times they still wear their mm-hmm. Yamaka. In order for edifying in love. Okay. Yes. And so, and as we said earlier, a lot of those traditions like the yarmulke and the covering of the head, they took scriptures and pulled them out of context and made human rules about them. And that's how they're living. And so those stand. it's just like though today we're living under a standard. Our standard is women do not cover their head in church. Right. And does that make us all great big old fat sinners? No, we already were. Thank you. Oh, you are so good. Very good. Yeah, we already were. We already were. But on this one subject, does this mean that having studied this, that we should all change our, our way of doing business and put a hat back on? or put a head covering on? The answer is no. You know what's very interesting is as a woman teacher, now this has been a slow process and I'm very blessed to live in the age when they have allowed women. There has been times in history when I would not be allowed to do my teaching in the church. I would have to do it privately with women, but I could not. you men could not come. But this is what's great. I know Pastor Rob, when he was still here, he's the one that kind of went through this transition, and he finally came around and changed the rules at our church and said, yes, women can. But we are still struggling with it in some of our older groups. Some of our classrooms are still, you know, a little resistant to that because the men have always been taught. And so out of respect for that, do I go into my classroom and go, well, I, God says I can't, I'm going to. Do I do that? Why not? Okay, I am still under the authority, and would that be a love that edifies those men who have been taught in that manner and still hold fast to that? No. But it's going to be really cool because when we get into spiritual gifts here uh, real soon, in these next few chapters, um, we're going to see why the gifts were given, who they were given to. But even in this chapter itself, it tells us when women pray, And when women prophesy, they were to cover their head. So what does that tell you about women praying and prophesying in the church? You're all good. But somehow men have negated that part and just went to the women, cover your head. But they forgot about this part. Men also have a duty, right, in order that they not dishonor God. And we do it so that we will not disgrace God or disgrace our husband, the head. Was a good lesson. I wish we'd gotten to the Lord's Supper. Does anybody have a question about any of that Lord's Supper? And I thought it, for most of us, it's such a commonly understood passage that we would really not struggle with it. Should we cover anything specific? Is everybody good? I thought you would be, and that was why I went ahead and spent most of my, or really all of my time on this. I'm so sorry.